We'll be reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 976. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Again, page 976. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, brother. This past summer, I traveled further underground than I have ever been before. It was 26 stories below ground, in fact. We were in Chattanooga, Tennessee's Ruby Falls. Anybody ever been to Ruby Falls before? A few of us, yeah. So when you arrive on site, uh, you would never know the glory that is beneath you. It's an ordinary parking lot, but 260 feet below your feet is a maze of ancient, beautiful caves, all leading to this 125-foot, amazing, beautiful underground waterfall. It really is amazing, it's breathtaking, it is beautiful. It's kind of hard to wrap your mind around the fact that you are uh, 200 feet below ground, more than 200 feet below ground, and you're seeing this gigantic waterfall. Well, you walked through our doors today into this building, probably not even thinking about the maze of ancient, beautiful soil that is beneath us this morning. And I'm not really talking about the geological soil that is underneath us. I'm talking about the spiritual soil that the roots of the church are plunged into, and they have been plunged into for more than 2,000 years. And the soil that we are all planted into as the church is fertilized by God's cosmic gospel plan. It is ancient soil. It is prehistoric soil. It is beautiful and rich and breathtaking. And it is what supports what you see on the surface here of our little church and many, many other churches like us. So I worked in customer relations before coming here to Trinity, and I routinely had to fire off emails to like 30 and 40,000 people at a time. It was very nerve-wracking. I would literally start sweating before I hit send. You know, you're just hovering over the send button, afraid to click. Um, and I'd be wondering if I forgot to include something in this email, because you don't want to waste, it's one thing to waste one person's time, it's another to waste 40,000 people's time. Uh, The accumulation of hours there is not a pleasant thought to consider, uh, especially when your paycheck is on the line. So uh, one of the things I always, always, always had to do uh, is to have this sort of mental checklist to make sure that everything that needed to be in these emails was in these emails. And one thing that always, always had to be in the emails was something that is called a call to action. Something to click on for, for them to go to the next step in the process. And usually, 
when you're a for-profit business, the next step is spending more money, um, which was what, what the goal was. Some of you in here work at that company, and you were beneficiaries of me, including those call to actions, because uh, I've, I've made you money with those call to actions, so you're welcome. Anyway, um, the interesting thing about this Ephesians 1 passage that we're going to dig into today is that there isn't really a call to action. It's more like a call to awe, a call to wonder. And that will be our big takeaway today, just to shake our heads and just be like, Jesus, you are amazing. That's it. So let's dig our little spades into the soil together and see if we can't get down to the really, really good soil underneath the church of Jesus Christ. How and why is this thing still standing? Why are we gathered here this morning? Well, in the last week or two, you've probably opened up your laptop or the text app on your phone and you've started typing. Probably in most of those interactions, you've said something like, hey, so-and-so, I hope you're well. The reason I'm writing you is, you know, whatever, whatever it is that you're writing about. That's what's happening here in verses 1 and 2 of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul's writing a letter like many, and, many of you and I have done thousands of times. He's popped open his prehistoric laptop and he's addressing a group of people about a certain set of issues. So when you read this letter from beginning to end, and I'd encourage you to do that, we sent out an email this last week with a few tools to help us sort of understand the, the, uh, the overview of Ephesians. Uh, I'd encourage you to go open that email and click on some of those links in there. But when you read the letter, and especially the second half of the letter, you learn that the first century church isn't all that unlike our modern day church, even right here at Trinity. There, there were people struggling to include people from different cultural backgrounds. They're having trouble with marriages and families and work relationships. So the, the recipients of this letter from Paul are just normal people faced with ordinary problems like us. But, but Paul probably does not start addressing those problems where you think he might would or might should. He doesn't even address the behavioral fruits at all for the first half of the letter. He doesn't say, hey, rip off that bad fruit. Uh, stop behaving this way. Stop acting like that. He actually starts with what's under the tree. He starts with the soil. He does get to the fruit eventually, and we will get to the fruit eventually, but this is not his starting point. He starts with the prehistoric gospel, the gospel that started before history began. And I think this is instructive for us just on a practical level. When we have problems, when we're helping friends through problems, maybe even over a meal, hint, hint, uh, we've talked about eating with Jesus for the last four weeks together. And if this was like really accessible, the last four weeks were more accessible and more applicable, like maybe right on the surface, uh, we are plunging way beneath the surface for these next few weeks, okay? Just to give you a heads up, um, we're going to have to work hard to, to get our minds wrapped around the beauty and the glory of Ephesians 1. Uh, but, but anyway, um, Paul doesn't start with the fruits, he starts with the roots. Um, and so when we're doing this over the table maybe with somebody in here, what is our starting point? Well, Paul seems to think that the solution to our ordinary problems starts with the foundational gospel of our extraordinary God. You got to get the foundation right before you fix the fruit. You got to get the soil right and healthy before you get healthy fruit. So Paul spends the first half of this letter deepening our understanding of our great salvation. He deepens our roots into the soil of the gospel. And then he spends the second half of the letter solving real problems. So think of these first three chapters 
like the really rich soil that you buy at Home Depot the big, in those big bags. It's full of good stuff so that when you plant the seed in it, it's sure to grow up into the healthy plant. Well, that plant may struggle from time to time. Maybe there's a drought. Maybe there's a heat wave. Maybe there's a frost. But it can withstand all that stuff because of its initial health in that hardy soil. And the soil that Paul starts with here will help you survive your own waves of persecution, the waves of persecution that are coming for us as Christians. The rich soil of Ephesians will help you just stay faithful in ordinary life. The gospel isn't just for hard times, it's for normal times. I think sometimes we get in this rut of, you know, talking about all the worst of times, and we don't ever just talk about all the normalist of times. The gospel is for those times as well. Help, um, they will help us, Ephesians will help us not throw in the towel when a loved one unexpectedly passes in a freak accident or your friend gets cancer news. None of us want to live in a world where children die. None of us want to live in a world where we will all age out of existence, every one of us in here. No one wants to live in a world where COVID blows through an entire planet. But in our sin-ravaged world, this is our reality. And if we want to survive this reality, we need deep roots in rich soil. Our hearts are the roots for these next few months, and Ephesians is the soil. So that's where we're headed. But before we do that, I just want to highlight a couple of short things about Paul's introduction in his letter here. First, you should know that Paul is writing from prison. If you flip ahead to chapter 6 and verse 20, you can confirm that. Um, and this word apostle that he uses here, just from the jump, that's him just like flashing his credentials to prove to you that you should listen to him. Him saying that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Well, what were Paul's credentials? Well, the, his credentials were that he that had uh, interacted with the risen Christ. You've probably heard this word apostle a lot if you're familiar with the Christian faith and if you've read through the New Testament. Really, the word apostle is just a reference to those who had interacted with the risen Christ and were therefore Jesus' authorized and empowered witnesses to proclaim the global will of God through the word of God. That's what apostles did. They proclaimed the will of God in the word of God. And Paul's like, hey guys, listen up. I've met Jesus, I know about Jesus, and I'm going to tell you all about Jesus. That's what he's saying by here. Hey, I'm an, I'm an apostle. And then he references who he's writing to. He says, I'm writing to the saints at Ephesus. It's just a city, uh, a city by the name of Ephesus. And I, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word saint, the saints at Ephesus. But he is not writing to a whole bunch of pious people with halos overhead and hands clasped in a holy manner. That's not what a saint is according to the word of God. He's writing to a people who, from God's perspective, have been made righteous by someone else's righteousness. Justin has talked about this repeatedly this morning during the liturgy time. Um, they have not performed like saints. That's not what Paul is saying. They have been made saints by someone else's righteousness. So on account of what Jesus has done, we are saints, church. We are saints, Paul very well could have just written to the saints who are in Abington. We are saints. So on account of what Jesus has done, we are saints. Not the New Orleans saints will dog it, thankfully, but God's saints in Jesus Christ. 
Research suggests that this letter was intended for a larger audience than just the city of Ephesus. It is what is called, or what was called, a circular letter. So it would have been written to one church, and they would have passed it on to another, and to another, and to another. It was designed to be read by a number of churches. Ephesus was what is in now modern-day Turkey. To get your geographical bearings for where this letter was being passed from church to church, I'm just going to throw this map up here for you to see. You can see where Ephesus was there with a little dot. And for all of us geographically challenged people, um, if you look over there on the left side, you can kind of see this, uh, the boot of Italy, if that sort of helps you reckon with what part of the world that we're looking at here. And so Paul greets them with grace and peace, which would have just been the traditional Gentile and Jewish greetings smashed together. Grace and peace to you. And so then he just jumps into this avalanche of praise for the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And if you can believe this, if you look down at your text, verses 3 to 14 is a single sentence in the original Greek language. 3 all the way to 14. That's 202 words. My man perfected the art of the run-on sentence. One scholar called it, and I quote, the most monstrous, monstrous sentence conglomeration he had ever met in the Greek language. He and Paul are going to have to duke that one out on the other side, I guess. But it is a long sentence. But this is the soil sentence that I have been referencing. This is the soil that our roots plunge into day after day, week after week, year after year. So even though the call to action in this text is not all that clear, this is not a waste of time. The call to awe is transparent and obvious. It's meant to make us lose ourselves in the cosmic, transcendent, amazing glory of Jesus. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've never seen a picture of the Grand Canyon. If you've been there, you've never been to the Grand Canyon. But you're there with a friend, and they want to introduce you to this amazing sight. And they blindfold you before you get out of the car. And they make you lay on your belly, and they scoot you forward until just your eyes and your nose are over the rim of the canyon. Then imagine, them having, then imagine having them rip off that blindfold, and for the very first time, you're taking in this expansive, raw beauty. You'd probably be stunned and say, oh, this is so deep and so wide and so magnificent. No one would ever say, hey, check out my outfit. Don't you like how the blue in my eyes draws out the blue in my shirt? No one talks about themselves when they see this beauty for the first time in their lives, right? No one has ever said that after seeing the Grand Canyon. Why? Because they're engulfed in something richer and greater and unspeakably magnificent and more important than the blue in your eyes and your shirt. I think this is the purpose of Ephesians 1 that we get lost in something more magnificent than we have ever seen before. So there is this like majestic Grand Canyon-like glory to Ephesians 1. It doesn't really take a whole lot of work for you to sort of take in the beauty of the Grand Canyon. You can just sort of stand there with your jaw dropped as you encounter that raw, explosive, expansive beauty. But there's a different kind of beauty too. A carefully crafted intricate, exquisite kind of beauty that requires a lot more work to appreciate. Imagine, for instance, study, studying the inner workings of the human cell. It takes effort, right? It takes focus. It takes special tools to be able to see the intricate beauty 
of the human cell. I think you'll want to keep that second kind of beauty in mind today as we unearth the beauty of Ephesians 1. This is going to be work today. This is going to be like a, like a herky-jerky difference uh, from the last four weeks. It's like learning to drive stick shift, right? And you're kind of just doing that. It may feel a little bit like that today because we are going from uh, hand, get very uh, practical to very deep and rich. So hang on with me as we do this. I, I, I hope that by the end of our time today, we will all have sufficiently dropped our jaws at God's, God's mind-blowing sovereignty and kindness but we will need to apply ourselves. This is tough, but amazing sledding. So having said that, let's become grammar nerds for just a second, okay? Grammar nerds, reach back into eighth grade English. If you are in eighth grade, reach into eighth grade English and see if you can remember your prepositions. Look especially at the prepositions in and through. Look at verse one, faithful in Christ. Verse three, blessed in Christ. Verse four, Chosen in Christ. Verse 5, adopted through Christ. Verse 6, graced in Christ. In the beloved there is just another name for Jesus. The one whom God loves is Jesus. So we have received grace in Christ. So this is the glorious underground soil of the church, and it's all wrapped up in the person of Christ. So if you just follow along with those bullet points again, we are made faithful by Christ. We access the Spirit's blessing through Christ. We are only chosen because of Christ. We are brought into the family on account of Christ, and we are given free grace of God by virtue of Christ. Jesus is the singular reason why any of us have any sort of hope in this life or for the next. The only reason so if in your mind you could just sort of flip those bullet points to the opposite of what, you, what we just experienced there, do this in your head. Without Christ, we are faithless. Without Christ, we get no blessing. Without Christ, God would not choose us. Without Christ, we are orphans. Without Christ, we are without grace. Our hopes are all utterly bound to this one man. So if I can just echo Shai's question from last weekend. He asked this question. Do you love this man? Do you love Jesus? If you missed it, Shai told us of asking this elderly saint at their church, uh, a woman in her 90s who had walked with Jesus for decades and decades. He asked her, do you love Jesus? And with a little tear tumbling down her cheek, she said, oh, I love that man. I love that man. To know Jesus is to love Jesus. To know Jesus is to be obsessed with him. Because to not know him is to be condemned. To be justly condemned. Do you love this man? Here's why you should love Jesus. If you're not a believer this morning, this is what you could get in on by faith. Number one, the blessing of your salvation, the blessing of your salvation. Paul starts here by telling us of the blessing of our salvation. And he calls them spiritual blessings there in verse three. This is kind of complex in verse three. But if you look, we see who has the blessings. They are in Christ. We see where the blessings are. If 
you could flip to the slide, it would help me show them. Uh, yeah, because it's kind of complex. Thank you, Rachel. We can see who has them. We can see where the blessings are. They're in the heavenly places. And just, I always tell people, we want to have like the most cut, muscular necks in all of Abington, all right? That means you look down and you look up, and you look down and you look up. I'm just saying that to say, compare what I'm saying with the word, because it's the authority, okay? Take nothing from me, take it all from here. So look down and look up. Anyway, work those muscles out in your neck. We can see where the blessings are. They are in the heavenly places. We can see how we get the blessings. They are applied to us by the Spirit of God. That's why they are called spiritual blessings. And we can see what the blessings are in verse 4. God chose us to be holy. Verse 5, God predestined us to be adopted. Well, I don't know about you, but when I hear this phrase, the heavenly places, I instinctively think like up there somewhere. That's where my spiritual blessings are. But the, the heavenly places is not a geographical location. It's a spiritual place. It's the unseen spiritual world. No less in the world that you and I inhabit right now. No less real, but still unseen. And I understand if you aren't a Christian um, or if you're a new Christian, this may all sound super spooky to you. But this is the claim of the Christian Bible, that, that what we see here is not all that there is. And besides, there are things that none of us can see, but that we all believe to be true. Think of gravity, for instance. We can't see it, but it is true. And that phrase, in the heavenly places, it's used five times in this short letter. So clearly it was like an important idea for Paul. It was meaningful for him. Well, what's the point of it, though? None of us have been to heaven yet. Why is Paul saying that we have access now to the blessings of the heavenly places before we have ever set foot onto heavenly soil? What's the point here? Well, let's compare the way Paul uses this phrase in other places in Ephesians, and we'll compare two verses here real quick. Chapter 1, verse 20, and then chapter 2, verse 6. You can follow along on screen with me. Here's chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And then look at chapter 2, verse 6. And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in chapter 20, uh, in verse 20 of chapter 1, we are, uh, Jesus sits. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, we sit. Do you see the, sort of the progression of thought there? We get to take a seat with Jesus because for those of us in Christ, our work is done. So we sit with Jesus. This is what it means to be in Christ. It means we get the benefits of Christ. So personalize this for a moment, if you will, in your own mind. I, Josh, I get the benefits, the spiritual benefits of the eternal God through my faith in Jesus. So Paul is saying that whatever blessing Jesus got when he was done with his work is the same blessing that we get. Same blessing. We've talked a lot about this idea of the seated Christ, and we talked about it mostly when we were going through Hebrews uh, for the last couple of years. Do you remember this, though? The one piece of furniture that was not located in the temple. Does anybody remember what it was? The one piece of furniture? A chair. Yeah, there were no chairs in the temple. And why is that? Because the work was never done. People kept sinning, so priests kept sacrificing, and there was no time to be sitting. So the ultimate sacrifice steps up for us in the person of Jesus. He was crucified, and when he was done, he pulled up a chair and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. For the first time ever, a priest sits 
down on the job because the job was done. This is an important image because the work to get to God, for you and for me to get to God, the work is done. According to Ephesians 2, we are sitting with him right now. You and I are sitting with Jesus, spiritually speaking, because our work is done. We're seated right next to the Father. Let that take hold in your heart. Paul is saying that in Christ our work is done because there is nothing left that we need to do to gain the Father's favor. This is the primary spiritual blessing that Paul is referencing here of your salvation. You don't have to clamor for God's affection. You don't have to perform in a certain way. You don't have to plummet in shame when you know you failed him. Jesus stands in your place as the perfect living substitute. Okay, so we're investigating the soil. What else is here? God's choice in your salvation. The blessing of your salvation and now God's choice in your salvation. Look at that phrase there in verse 4. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So before we even start in on the complexities of verse 4, when we are delving into the deepest mysteries of God, like how man's responsibility and how God's sovereignty work together, how they interact, when we try to unravel these things, we should tread really carefully. Sometimes you just sort of sit back, nod, and you just let God be God. Eugene Peterson says it like this. He says, God is who he is. We don't figure God out. We don't explain God. We don't define God. We worship God who is as he is. We don't second guess God. We don't evaluate God on a scale of one to 10. We don't presume to tell God how to be God. When we worship God, we let God be God. This demands absolute humility. We become aware that we are in the presence of a reality that cannot be used to our ends, cannot be packaged, cannot be grasped on any other terms than are given to us by God. Those are humbling words. And this is how we approach this talk of predestination and sovereignty and God's choice. So can I just encourage us for these next few minutes, let's set aside our calculators and our calculations Let's stop calculating and enter into the wonder of it all. Stick your nose and your eyes out over the edge of that Grand Canyon. Adore God for this mysterious majesty rather than doing the math and just trying to figure it all out and how it all works together. Look at the beginning of verse 4 there. God chose his people. So this is what this means. God looked out over space and time before time began, and he chose who among us would be Christians. This flattens all of us in this way. Your salvation did not begin with your choice to believe in Jesus. Now your choice was real and it was necessary. It was a means to your salvation, but it did not begin there. Your salvation began before creation when God planned the redemption story and chose you to be his own through Christ. This should give you rock solid assurance. If you're a Christian, God has chosen you. And we've all probably felt the sting of not being chosen for something that we really deeply want to be chosen for. Maybe someone else got the raise in your company. Maybe someone else got the promotion in your company. Maybe you were always picked last on the kickball field. I kid you not, when we have had yard sales, I cannot tolerate watching people pick up my 23-year-old Tommy Hilfiger ties and examining them and then putting them back on the table and walking away. It is 
Miriam can verify this. It has so troubled me that when we have yard sales, I go in the house and I close the blinds and I peek through the blinds. <laughs> I, I cannot take the rejection of my stuff. It kills me. Well, maybe there's a person or a group here in this church or elsewhere that you just wish would give you the time of day, but they won't. And we feel this sting of rejection. Not being chosen for something we want makes us feel like we are worthless, that we're good for nothing, that because we have been rejected, we must have no merit. But here we find out that we were chosen. But we were not chosen on account of our merit. God chose you in Christ. The Bible tells us that we are made righteous through faith. But how does our faith make us righteous in God's sight? How does this work? It is because faith unites you with Christ. Faith unites you with Jesus. And it unites you so closely to Christ that it's just like you're him. You're in Christ. Christ who is your righteousness. The righteousness beneath your justification is not something worked out by you, but it's lived out by Jesus. So hear this. Without Jesus, you would not be chosen. You were not good enough to make the team. And neither was I. This is the utter humiliation of our salvation. It is entirely independent of you and all dependent on Jesus. God cannot unchoose you based on what you do or don't do because he never chose you for what you do or don't do. That's a glorious sentence and you need to let it trickle down into your soul. Listen to this. God cannot and will not unchoose you based on what you do or don't do because he never chose you for what you do or don't do in the first place. He chose you based on what Jesus did and didn't do. He chose you in Christ. Your position before God has been decisively settled simply by being in Christ. Nothing can threaten that. I love that man. I love that man. Okay, so God chose you in Christ, but there's something else about his choice here that we need to look at. And let me, let me try to explain it in this way. The moment each of our daughters, we have four girls, exited the womb, they had won the hearts of both Miriam and me. It wasn't because they were so attractive in that moment. They were not. They were screaming and covered in goo. They hadn't obeyed any of our commands yet. They had not performed well at a concert or in a ball game. They hadn't grown up to be doctors and buy me a, a beach house in my retirement. They had won our favor before doing a single positive act. We set our love on them simply because they were ours. If you are a Christian, God chose you, not based on you. His love is independent of you. He loved you before your little fingers and toes were formed in the womb, before your lungs filled with oxygen before the first time and you let out that first scream. He set his love on you. He set his love on you in Christ. God chose you before you. God chose you in Christ, and God chose you before you. See it in verse 4? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. There was nothing about me, there was nothing about you that was attractive to him. But by God's grace, he chose us in Jesus. I love that man. He chose us because of Jesus. 
Gerhardus Voss really helps us feel the tremendous weight of this glory and stretches our brains to think outside the bounds of time. He also stretches our pronunciation of a name, Gerhardus Voss. But he says this, God will never stop loving us because he never started. Rest in that, Christian. Let's keep digging into this rich soil to see the destiny of your salvation. The destiny of your salvation, number three. So one of the most iconic movie lines in the last 30 or 40 years comes from the lips of George McFly to the ears of Lorraine Baines. So George walks into Lou's Cafe and he orders a milk. Chocolate. You remember that? Okay, apparently. Apparently not. Wow. I just saw that going differently. Um, then he walks up to Lorraine. He walks up to Lorraine and he boldly proclaims, Lorraine, my density has brought me to you. So confused, Lorraine is like, uh, what? Oh, what I meant to say is, I'm George. I'm George McFly. My density has brought me to you. I mean, my destiny. And so George was Lorraine's destiny, apparently. We find that out at the end of the story. Oh, man, I just ruined it. Didn't even mean to. Sorry. Um, normally it's calculated when I ruin a punchline for you, but that was not. That was an accident. I apologize. I think the movie came out in, like, 1984, so it's on you. Um, for Christians, our density, our destiny is holiness. God chose us to a certain end, to a certain destiny, and that destiny is holiness. Now, he did not choose me because I was holy or good, but so that I might become holy and good. Verses 4 and 5 teach us what God chose us for. To what end did God choose us? That we should be holy and blameless. There is a holiness that is given to us, and there is a holiness that is pursued by us. Paul wants to convince us of the importance of both, the holiness given to us and the holiness pursued by us. By us. Now, we've already talked about this holiness and blamelessness that is given to us on account of Jesus' performance in our place, but we're also called to something here. We are wooed to it by the glorious Christ. Not like a stuffy holiness that we might think of when we hear the word holy, We've heard in recent weeks that Jesus came doing what? Eating and drinking with sinners and saints. Jesus was a sanctified partier. He was pure. He wasn't stuffy, but he was holy. He was, and he calls us to pursue a holy life too. Holiness just means set apart. Set apart for a specific reason, for, for God. And he calls us to live a life set apart to him and for him as we live our very ordinary lives, as we eat and drink. So we are given the holiness of Christ through faith in Jesus, and we are to enact the holiness of Christ in our own lives. That's our destiny, to look like Jesus. We're chosen for holiness, and we're also chosen to demonstrate a family resemblance. So God chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless and to demonstrate a family resemblance. See what comes next? Look there in verse 5. We have been predestined for Adoption through Jesus Christ. In other words, God draws us into the family and he wants us to look like his family. He draws us in. He chooses us to be in. And he wants us to look like we are in the family. 
And who is the family? The holy and blameless Christ. That's our whole calling in life, to look like Jesus, to look like our brother, Jesus. So think of a family right now that you know that has adopted children. There are a few in our church. But think of them and how they treat their adopted kids by God's grace. They do their best to treat their biological children and their adopted children with equal respect and value. Imagine the perfect God doing this, because this is what he does. He does it impeccably. He treats his biological, as it were, son, Jesus, and spiritual sons, us, his adopted sons, us, the same way. He treats us like he treats Jesus. That means the father would no sooner turn his head away from you, his gaze away from you, than he would Jesus Christ himself. What have you done that's so bad? What what sin are you engaged in right now that is disappointing God? It is not too much. He turned his face away from Jesus while Jesus was dying for those sins so that he could set his affectionate gaze on you. Not just us, but you, but me. Jesus has won for you God's affectionate gaze on you forever. A few months back, we had a really powerful morning together as we were exploring James 1, and we were talking about adoption. And a few of our ladies got up here and shared, and one of the things that Jody Young said, uh, she's getting a shout out today on screen, and she's not even here to enjoy it. But Jody, if you listen to this, this was your quote. She said, it was there, talking of her adopted children, it was there in those toughest moments, feeling irrationally angry with a tiny raging child whose whole world had been turned upside down, that the real picture of what God did in adopting me came into focus. I wasn't some sweet, endearing little kid who came running into God's arms and embraced him. I was. I am a kicking, raging, willful mess who thought I was doing just fine without God's help. It was only through God's relentless pursuing love and grace that I was adopted into his family. He called me his child long before I began to act like I was. He calls you his child even when you don't act like his child. And do you know why? It's not because God is ushy-gushy. It's not because he is just sort of flexible on some stuff and he's willing to take some of your sinful brokenness. No, it's because you are in Christ, Christian. That is why you get to stay in the family even when you don't look like the family. Jesus gets you into the family on account of his behavior and not yours. He is your only way in. I love that man. Do you love that man? Your adoption is not based on your worth. It is rooted in God's eternal purpose and grace. And that means that your adoption is not fragile. God will not adopt and then find out that you are not worthy and renege. He knows we're unworthy. And he chose us and predestined us for adoption because of Christ. This is unshakable. In verse 5, we learn that God predestined us for adoption. And it's not like he looked out over the course of time and history and saw us and thought, you know what? That's a good one. I'll take that one. I am, I am trying to learn to enjoy fantasy football. I, I get beat almost every week, and I can't figure out why, 
and it's really irritating that I can't make substitutions that work and give me more points than the other jokers that are sitting here right now. It's humiliating. But before the season starts, if you've never played fantasy football, here's what happens. Before the season starts, you all gather and you sit down with these sheets that predict how many points a particular player is going to get on a particular week or on a weekly basis, I should say. (laughs) Miriam totally hates fantasy football um, because not only do the Eagles matter on Sunday, now all the games matter on Sunday. It is genius, and we are forever indebted to the man who created this concept of fantasy football because Miriam's not wrong. All the games do matter. But it's not as if Father, Son, and Spirit were sitting there in eternity past at their annual fantasy Christian draft thinking, hmm, that John Riggs guy, boy, he can sling it on the drums. I want that guy. Or that Will Zong guy, man, his accent is going to win thousands to Jesus. I'm going to grab him, first rounder. No, there was nothing about any of us that made us worthy of adoption. We were made worthy of adoption because of our older brother. It was only made possible, verse 5, through Jesus Christ. We get a ridiculous privilege of being adopted into the family of God only because of Jesus. Only because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. Do you love this man? I love this man. We were brought into the family with the destiny of looking like the firstborn in the family. The firstborn of all creation. Then flowing from our position as a son of God, in the family of God, the call here is to be In verse 4, is to be progressively conformed into the holy and blameless image of the Son of God. But please just note, one more caveat here, that your pursuit of holiness and obedience to God is rooted in the finished work of Jesus. We don't earn our way in. Jesus earned it and just calls us to live like we're a part of the family. Okay, if our destiny is a holy family resemblance, then our purpose is praise. And we'll close out with this today. God's purpose for your salvation. So there is a singular, laser-like focus to all of this. It's very God-centric. It's the rich soil beneath the church's foundation, and it's designed to praise God's glorious grace. Grace is one of these terms that we like to sing about and talk about all the time, but I think it's kind of challenging to get our minds wrapped around what it actually is. But let me take a stab. Grace means that we get good things, when we actually deserve bad things. Grace means that we get good things when we actually deserve bad things. And what is that good thing? The righteousness of Jesus that makes us acceptable with the Father. That's what grace is. Acceptance with the Father on account of what Jesus has done for us. Your salvation in mind is designed to tell the whole world, your salvation in mind is designed to tell the whole world how great God's grace is. And there's just about... Nobody better that I know of to help us unpack God's desire for his own glory than a guy named John Piper. He helps us understand how it could be possible and okay that God wants his own glory. He says this, Do you see what the goal of his choosing us is? His predestining us for adoption is. His redeeming us through Jesus Christ is. Do you see what the purpose is, the goal is? Election, predestination, adoption, to the praise of the glory of his grace. He is doing all of that so that his glorious grace would be praised. So from the beginning, his mind was like, I will be praised. That was his mind. 
Nobody else could talk like this. That is the reason it sounds so strange to us as, as human beings. And by strange, he just means that if, if any of us admitted this out loud, that we're doing something for our praise, and that everyone on the entire planet should be consumed with my praise, if we said something like that, we would be ostracized, and rightly so. So why does God get to say it? And some of us here might say, look, if he's loving me just to get glory for him, that's not actually loving me. That's a roundabout way of him loving himself. So if some of us read the Bible, which is a very God-centered book, it's all about God, we might come away scratching our heads. So, so how is it good for us that God is this way? How is God being self-exalting good news for us? This is what he means by it being strange. So let's continue and he'll answer these questions for us. From before eternity, God's mind was, it was this, I will write a story of redemption and the goal of the story will be the praise of the glory of my grace. Now, here we start to get a hint of why this is good news for us. The apex of the glory of God, which he means to be praised, is his grace. That's what it says there in verse 6, under the praise of the glory of his grace. He didn't say the glory of his wrath is the main thing that he wants to be praised. Now, it will be praised, his wrath, but it is not the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing to be praised is his grace. So the reason that God's self-exaltation can come to us sinners as good news is that it secures grace. Getting good things instead of bad things. That's what grace is, remember? Grace is the thing that he wants to be praised the most for. So he is going to devote the story of history in a way that grace will be predominant. God wants his people to be with him so that they might see his glory. That's why he keeps lifting up his glory for us to see. That is why he keeps exalting himself. It is our life. It is our hope. It is our joy. It is the satisfaction of our souls. If God were not self-exalting, he would not be loving because he would not be giving us the most ultimately enjoyable thing in the universe. We should have no other response to this other than praise and awe that we are allowed to get in on this thing. This is the best news in all the world that we have talked about this morning. It is the soil that keeps us healthy and upright when conditions are good or ordinary or terrible. No matter where you're at today, Jesus is there. I love that man. Jesus is there. And what a friend we have in Jesus. So today we have plumbed the depths of the Christian gospel. It has been hard work, sometimes complex and challenging. As scientists go deeper and deeper into their studies of the human cell, they walk away with a deeper and deeper appreciation of the complexity of the way that human beings work. They keep finding out more and more and walk away more and more impressed with the human body. I hope today you can walk away with more appreciation for Jesus, for what was actually happening in real time while Jesus was hanging on the cross. He was writing and finishing your story of grace. Do you love this man? So we're, we're going to close today with what I think may be the best appropriate application. Remember, there's not a clear call to action, but here's what I think the underlying assumption is. To sing really loud praise because we've gotten really good things when we deserve really bad things. And that's only because of Jesus. And here's why I think praise is the most appropriate call to action here. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, 
I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. In other words, enjoyment isn't complete until we enjoy the thing, whatever that might be, with someone by expressing our joy to someone. We want to enjoy with someone and express it to someone. This is why when you're watching something funny on TV, you love to look at others in the room and see if they're laughing along with you. That's a communal experience, and it completes the joy of the thing because you're enjoying it with others. It's a really helpful insight by Lewis. He says, delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone about how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley or unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. (laughs) He said it, not me. Um, Or to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. This morning, let's share our awe and amazement around this table here and in song together. Look around and see the people praising and enjoying God. Enjoy that. Listen around and hear other people praising and enjoying God. And allow this to help fuel and increase your appreciation and love for Jesus. I hope you love this man. Let's pray. While I'm praying, uh, the band and the communion servers can come up. Lord, we've seen you. We have been amazed by you. And we're grateful for you. I pray that you draw us deeper and deeper into love with you. In Jesus' name, amen.